God, as we turn our attention to the study of your word this morning in Acts chapter 5, would you illuminate what you want us to hear by the power of your Holy Spirit? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat this morning. You know, it's not accidental this morning uh, that our big point from our text in Acts chapter 5 is that God does big things through his gathered people. God does big things through his gathered people. So I want to look this morning specifically at Acts chapter 5. We're going to read verses 12 through 20 in, in our section this morning. It begins, verse 12, Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade, and no one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. As a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. In addition, a multitude came together from the town surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And then the high priest rose up, he and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But the, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night. He brought them out and said, go, stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. Well, we're in a short series in the book of Acts this week called Community of the Faithful. It's part of what we kind of highlighted as we look back here in two, 2023. Uh, we're going to see in this passage this morning, there's this sort of, uh, it's a transition as we've looked last week in Zach's message at the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. Um, and, and now we move into a season uh, another scene, if you will, where there's signs and wonders and miracles being done. What's the connection there? Well, it's interesting. I saw the connection right away this week. Um, I pulled up my notes, and I'd sort of outlined the chapter back in November, I think it was. And my first point this morning is that, is that God cares about the purity of the church. And I said to Zach, check this out. Because if you were here last week, you'll note one of Zach's two main points was God cares about the purity of his people. Right, as he talked about Ananias and Sapphira and why they died for their disingenuous and dishonest gift to the church. And here months ago, I'd outlined this with the same starting point. And I think we're going to see uh, in this text that God cares about the purity of the church in a little bit more fine, uh, finer or subtle ways here in the text. And so this is our first point. Remember, kind of our big overarching point of application is that, that God does big things through his gathered people. But let's look at this first point. God cares about the purity of the church. And specifically, we see that, uh, that the power of God is being, um, uh, is coming through, through human agency. It says in the text, many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. God is using the apostles to bring signs, wonders, and miracles to uh, this new thing that he's doing, the birth of the church. And on the one hand, last week, it, was, it necessitated uh, uh, an extreme uh, call to holiness in the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. Here we see it's manifested in signs and wonders. And when God does something significant in history, this often takes place. But his power is made known through human touch, through hands. Now, an application of this down through the centuries actually became a... a a, mode, a modus operandi, if you will, a theology for modern medicine, right? That God uses human hands. And if you look at uh, anointing oil in the scriptures became a motivation for developing modern medicine. But in the supernatural here, <clears throat> this is literally talking about miracles, signs and wonders. 
And we certainly believe today that God can bring healing. In fact, James chapter 5 tells us that when we're sick, we ought to call the elders of the church to be anointed with oil and prayed over for the sake of healing. That's something that we practice regularly here. Matter of fact, by way of illustration, this past week, Pastor Jason and I went to the home of someone from here at the church who's suffering with a, a physical illness that is incre- incredibly painful. And as we spent time with him, it, it, eventually we anointed him with oil, we knelt with him, and we placed our hands on him. We asked God to bring healing for him. You can pray for our friend Chris, that God would heal his body. And sometimes God does choose to heal. We have seen it as elders. And when it does, it confounds the doctors and the nurses. There's no other explanation. But other times he calls us to, uh, to trust in him and he draws near in our suffering. We're going to look at that a little bit more in a while. But suffice it to say, God is moving through the touch, particularly here in the text, of the apostles. And there's a response of the people to all that's happened here. If you look back at verse 11, it says, after Ananias and Sapphira die, there's this fear and dread that kind of comes over the, the people. This is all the people, not just the Christians, but everybody kind of in and around Jerusalem. There's like, what is going on here? This is significant. And then we see a response to, to both that and the miracles of really three groups. And we'll look at a fourth in a little while. The response of the first group is that of the, we'll call them the gathering of the faithful disciples. It says that they were all together in Solomon's colony. These are the, the, those who had believed in Jesus, uh, most of them Jews. These are uh, 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 this collection of people from all over the Roman Empire. And when they see what God is doing, both uh, the death of Ananias and Sapphira and the miracles that are being done, they actually, they lean in, right? They're, they're all in and they gather together in Solomon's colonnade in other words, the temple. They go to the place uh, where God is working. They want to be, they want to be together. At least that's the first response. The second response is the hesitation of those who we'll call in a modern application here are consumers and, credit, and critics. These are those who, they see what's going on, both the death and the miracles, and they go, whoa, I'm not so sure what's going on here. And the text actually says they speak well of them. Some scholars think that this is almost like a patronizing, like they don't want to make waves. And they count the cost and they're not willing to be committed. They're kind of on the outskirts. And again, the modern church, that would be uh, those that are uh, consumers and and critics. The third group are those who are uh, being added to the faith. Those whose lives are being changed and transformed kind of in the moment by what they're seeing, by what Jesus is doing in their lives. You know, it's interesting. I was talking to, to Joan, uh, whom we lost just a couple weeks ago, uh, near the end of her life. And, and I, I said, you know, you remind me of Anna in the gospel of Luke. If you know, in Luke's gospel, chapter two, Jesus is born and there's this woman who's in the temple and, and she, she wants to be around God's word and God's people all the time, the text says. Essentially, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. I said, Joan, that's just like you. And, and Joan actually would fit in both of these groups. She's part of the gathered faithful like Anna, but she's someone whose life was actively being changed by Jesus. For some of you, that might begin today, that God begins to change your life through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have these three groups. Now, remember our big point. God does big things through his gathered people. And it's fair to ask, in, in light of that, which group am I in? Right? Which group am I in? Am I a part of those who are all in? That, that when I hear about what God is doing in 2023 or what's coming in 2024, I want to be a part of that. I'm excited about what God is doing and I'm all in. 
Is, is that the group I'm a part of? Or maybe I'm more of a consumer or critic or at least somebody who's kind of the outside just measuring things a little more carefully. Or perhaps this morning, you're one of those again that Jesus is really moving in your heart and life. I want to speak a little bit this morning to that middle group. Maybe, maybe you say as you're listening this morning, you go, well, I don't, I don't know if I was a consumer or a critic. Let me give you a couple ways to, to kind of self-evaluate, take some inventory. If you come to church and you get here, you know, like 30% of you that arrive in the second or third song, sorry, it's true, um, and you, but in seriousness, if you come in just in time for church and then you leave as soon as it's over and you don't plug anywhere else, you're not one of those who stood this morning, you might be a consumer, right? If you come to church and, and you don't participate in the worship, but you kind of come almost as a concert because you like the music and, and you listen to this sermon and you're like, it's inspiring and it's interesting, but it doesn't move in you at all and you don't act on it, you might be a consumer. You know, some of you, <laughs> I had somebody come up to me after the first service and say, you sounded a little bit like Jeff Foxworthy there. You know, <laughs> if, if your coffee table is made from an engine block, you might be a redneck. <laughs> There's about... Um, I don't know, 45% of the church has no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> but am I a consumer? Or am I part of the gathered faithful about what God is doing? What about critics? If you come to church each week and from the moment you set foot in the building or this room or you sit down, you're kind of analyzing and, and, uh, and, and ultimately even just complaining about what you see, you might be a critic. Now, let me caveat that by saying I'm not talking about constructive criticism or, or good feedback. We need, fee we need people and, and the leadership teams and here at our church, this is the type of person. The type of person that kind of wrinkles their brow, right, turns their head and, and asks those questions that we need to be asked, right? That's healthy skepticism, good feedback. I'm talking about a critical spirit, a complainer, someone who you come in and you're not receiving anything. You're just in finger pointing mode. Right? Or maybe the, the elders or some of the ministry leaders uh, announce a new initiative or a new program or a new ministry is being started. And rather than going, asking questions of curiosity or, or leaning into it, you immediately begin to criticize it. The church, any church, has consumers and critics. My encouragement this morning is to ask ourselves, which group am I in? And sometimes I'm in all three of these groups, right? Sometimes Jesus is doing new things in my life. Uh, much of the time, I'm, I'm the one who's leaning in. I'm excited about what God is doing. Sometimes I'm a complainer too. So I want to invite us to come clean. God cares about the purity of his church, even in these subtler things. And if I'm a complainer, if I've just been a consumer, I need to own that, repent from that. I also want to encourage you to, to kind of come forward, to kind of lean into this community if, if God's calling you to do that. And finally, if God's moving in your life, but you've not yet said yes to Jesus, the church is not an organization or an institution, fundamentally think, speaking. The church is a family. It's a living organism. And so we want to invite you essentially to come home. Come clean, come forward, come home as you think about where this applies to you. Well, we've spent a good deal of time there. I want to move to our next point. God brings healing through his faithful people. But he does so through the means of himself. And I want us to note that this morning. Verse 15, it says, they would carry the sick out into the streets. They'd lay them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. This is a fascinating little verse in the scripture here. What's happening with this use of, of Peter's shadow? Well, it's interesting that Luke is kind of ambiguous about whether Peter's shadow actually healed anyone, right? He doesn't say one way or the other. But in the ancient cultures, particularly at this time, uh, a shadow was thought to 
in some, in some circles to have magical powers. And, and most scholars will note that those that are bringing the sick aren't necessarily Christians. There is this reputation of something powerful is happening here. Here's Peter, this eloquent spokesperson for this new religion. And so people are dragging their cots out there to say, maybe my loved one will get healed by the magical shadow of this person. Luke is pointing beyond any magic of Peter's shadow to something bigger. We could even say that, it's, that it, he's kind of hinting at the idea that it's not Peter's hands ultimately, right? It's the overshadowing power of God himself. In fact, I think you can make an argument if you, and Luke is intentional when we look at his gospel, that if you trace the language of shadow in the Bible, Peter's actually pointing to Jesus. How do I get there? To the Jewish believer in Jesus here in Jerusalem at this time, speaking of the overshadowing power of these miracles in the case of Peter would have brought to mind other images, particularly the Shekinah glory cloud of God's presence. If you remember the Old Testament story of God's covenant people, Israel, God delivers them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. He leads them in the daytime by a pillar of cloud and at night by a pillar of fire. This miraculous manifestation of God, he leads them, he guides them, and he protects them. And then he tells them to build a tabernacle, a tent for his presence to dwell in that will exist in the middle of the camp that he might protect them and be present with them. And they do that. And after the tabernacle is built in chapter 40, it says this, Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's presence comes to to dwell in the tabernacle and it overshadows so much so that Moses, God's man, can't even enter for a time into the tent of meeting. And God's powerful presence comes into the center of his people and he becomes their protector. This motif is carried through the New Testament uh, into the Psalms where the psalmist says, the one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. And he goes on to use two other metaphors to drive home this point of God's protection over his covenant people, Israel. The uh, The Jewish person, Jewish believer in Jesus would have understood this in what was happening. But as we come to Jesus in the New Testament, there are two major events where we see a similarly overshadowing power of God displayed in the life of Jesus. And the first is his very incarnation. Listen to this verse in uh, Luke chapter one. Again, Luke is the author here. And this is the angel speaking to Mary. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, this is a verse that we read with all the trimmings of the beauty of Christmas, and I think we read past it really quickly. This is a loaded theological verse. What Luke is saying is that the the power of God Almighty, the God of the universe, is going to overshadow the womb of this woman. And note that he uses the word therefore, because the power of God Almighty overshadows this woman's womb, it it by necessity, logically, that means that the, the, the baby that is born from that womb is the physical manifestation of the very glory of God himself in the birth of Jesus. It is a a powerful, deeply theological verse. Jesus' incarnation is the new covenant manifestation of the Shekinah glory cloud, you could say. The very presence of God. Jesus later talks about in John's gospel that he, or John talks about that he tabernacles among us, right? He dwells among us. The second event where we see the same idea of overshadowing is the transfiguration. 
Now, if you're new to the Bible, you might say, what's the transfiguration? What's this event described in Luke 9? And we use that, we call it that because in some older versions of the Bible, it will use the term that Jesus was transfigured. Listen to what it says. Jesus took along Peter, John, and James, and he went up on, a mount, on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white. They saw his glory. And a cloud appeared and overshadowed them. And then a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. As we see this this motif or this image of the overshadowing power of God carried forward into the New Testament in both the birth and the commissioning, if you will, by God the Father of Jesus himself. Then we come back to Luke's gospel. Remember the theme of Luke's gospel, and if you weren't with us a few weeks ago, uh, Luke, the companion of Paul, the physician, wrote the gospel of Luke, and he wrote the book we're studying now, Acts. Luke can be summed up with Luke's own words that the gospel of Luke thematically is about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And we said a few weeks ago, Acts is about all that Jesus continued to do and teach through the hands of the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what we're seeing in Acts chapter 5. And so we could say it this way, healing tends to draw a crowd, right? The deaths of Ananias and Sapphira create this sort of like some people step back, they're counting the costs, and then the signs and wonders draw a crowd. It says a multitude came together from the town surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. We see this in Jesus' ministry in Luke chapter 5. Remember the the friends who brought their their friend who was paralyzed and they couldn't get near Jesus because of the miracles and the teaching. And so what do they do? They lower him down through through the roof that Jesus might heal him. Or a few chapters later, there's this woman who has an issue of bleeding that she's dealt with most of her life, and, but she can't get near Jesus because the crowds, it says, are pressing in on him. It's like shoulder to shoulder. And so she, she kind of pushes her way forward and says, if I can just get a hold of his clothing, I'll know I'll be, I'll be healed. Profound faith, by the way. Healing tends to draw a crowd. And we know that when Jesus was here, that he, he didn't heal everyone. So there's this interesting statement. In fact, every healing that Jesus did, every miracle, and John's gospel makes this the most clear, is done for the purpose of validating him as the Messiah and his message that the kingdom is near. But there's an interesting phrase as we start to think about, okay, how do we apply this to our lives today? I think we first need to highlight this little phrase at the end of verse 16. It says, and they were all healed. I want to suggest to you this morning that this may be one of the most abused phrases in the entire New Testament down through the centuries, even in the late 19th century, early 20th century here in the United States, by faith healers and revival preachers and prosperity gospel preachers who would put loads on people, loads of guilt, and even extort money from people based on this concept that they were all healed. And so if you persist in being sick, it's because you don't have enough faith or you haven't given enough money. It is not God's will clearly in scripture that any of you be sick. That's the lie. Now, at, a, at kind of a macro, like the meta-narrative of scripture level, they're not wrong, right? When Jesus returns one day, Revelation 21 tells us there will be no more death, disease, despair, any of it. God will wipe away every tear. But until he does in this life, there is brokenness and pain and trial and illness. And to apply this scripture uh, out of context and to prescribe it onto every situation where someone 
has illness is not only heretical, it's also harmful. And so we need to be careful. We believe that God can heal. We are not a church that doesn't believe God can heal, even in the physical. But we do know that at times he chooses not to because he wants us to depend on him. He wants us to be intimate with him. So the, the principle here, and we've talked about this before in our study of Acts, is when we're looking at any passage of scripture that is a narrative describing what happened, in this case, the book of Acts, the birth of the church, we need to look at uh, it uh, being descriptive versus prescriptive. In other words, Luke is describing to us, this is what happened. Everybody who came at this moment was healed. He is not prescribing Therefore, everybody who comes to Jesus who's sick will be healed. We've got to look to the letters of Paul and other places where prescriptive teaching is given. And you say, well, well, what's the application? We'll get to that in a moment. I'll give you three questions to ask when interpreting any scripture. Number one, what, what was Luke's intention by the Holy Spirit as he wrote to the audience he was writing to? In the cultural context, in the time in which he wrote. You know, we looked at Deuteronomy a couple years ago that was written like in the 15th century BC and, and what were the implications of that for those people? Here we're in the first century, AD. The second question is, what does it then mean to us today? Uh, the Bible uses a lot of agricultural pictures. What's the equivalent? Like, how can we understand that in our context? And then the third question, where we're getting to here this morning is this, so what? What difference does it make? How does this have any bearing on my life? How should I respond? And if you're a Christian, how do I respond to this? What does God want me to do? So what's our application then this morning? I want to suggest to you it's this. What is the shadow effect of my Christian faith and obedience? Right, if, if the power of Peter and the apostles was actually the pervading power of the overshadowing of God Almighty, Really, there's a first question. Have I experienced that in my own life? Right? Has, has the, the power of God convicted me of my sin that I might trust in Jesus as my Savior? Do I even know what that experience is? But secondly, as I walk out my Christian life, if I am a Christian, what is the effect of my Christian faith and obedience? In the workplace, how do people respond to the way I live my Christian faith and obedience when, when, uh, when something adversarial happens? What about my home? What's the effect of my Christian faith and obedience when I'm disciplining my children or I come home after a stressful day? What is the effect, the shadow effect, if you will, of my Christian faith and obedience? I want to move on to our last point. We could spend some more time here, but third point is that God enables continued obedience in the face of opposition. We see this pretty clearly uh, it says in verse 17 that the high priest rose up, he and all who were with him of the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and they put them in the public jail. What they do here is actually really strategic. What we see is jealousy in a shame and honor culture. You see, the Sadducees are that group of the Jewish leadership that didn't believe in resurrection. And so they're pretty ticked off at the apostles for ripping around the city, proclaiming, Jesus is alive. We saw him alive. He's resurrected. And it's likely, as by extension, they didn't believe in miracles or healing either. But they're also jealous, the text says directly, because of the attention of all the miracles. And so their response, again, in a shame and honor culture is, let's put them in the public jail where people can see where they are and let's shame them into silence. But God will have none of it, right? What, what happens? They put them in the public jail and, and the, the Spirit of God, through an angel, like, 
brings them out of the jail and what was intended to shame them, the fact that they were thrown in jail, they're actually honored for. And, and God turns it on its head because this is what God does, right? He brings joy from sorrow. His mercies are new every morning and no matter what trial we face and what the evil one intends in the life of Joseph, we read in Genesis, right? What you intended for harm, God intended for good. This is the kind of God we serve. And so the gamesmanship of the, of the Sadducees completely backfires. You know, tomorrow's Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And I was thinking, you know, of all the people in American history who lived out this idea of fighting a battle, the battle for civil rights, through the action that is the opposite of every other cause, is Martin Luther King. Listen to what he said about his fight for civil rights. He said, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what, we, what you will, and we shall continue to love you. That's, that's gospel fighting, right? That's after the pattern of Christ who went to the very cross for us. You know, I was, I was saying to my wife last night, I said, you know, we're still in tough times when it comes to race relations in our country. And, and re I really believe the church has this tremendous opportunity to model a unity and diversity that the world pines for. But I said to my wife, imagine where our country would be if it wasn't for Do uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and how God used him. Talk about having a shadow effect on your generation. And we're still celebrating him today. And kind of following along that, uh, the very next thing that happens in the text is the angel of the Lord opens the doors of the jail, brings them out and says, go stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. What does the angel say? Stand firm and speak life. Stand firm and speak life. One ancient commentator said, this is not just a release from prison, it's a release to proclamation. And that is the gospel message. You say, you know, you use this term gospel a lot. What does that actually mean? The gospel means that through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, as I trust in what he did on my behalf, he frees me from the prison of my own sin and selfishness and God's judgment that is on me and even hell itself. But he doesn't just free me from that prison. He frees me to a new mission, a new worldview, a new paradigm that I might proclaim that message to others who are, to use the biblical language, lost in their sins, in their own prison of sin and selfishness. This is what the gospel is. It's not a release from, only a release from prison. It's a release to proclamation. This is what Peter has been saying all along. This is what the angel mandates the apostles to do. Stand firm and speak about this life. Peter had, had preached a message earlier in Acts that we looked at where he said that the path of life is joy. Listen to Acts 2.28. You have revealed, speaking to God here, you have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. The path of life, gladness comes in the presence of God, being in relationship with God. And that specifically happens, the source of that life, Peter says just a little bit later in this sermon, he says to the Jews, you killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. And we are witnesses, Greek word martyr, and most of the apostles will pay with their lives for this witness. We are witnesses of this. 
We are witnesses that the path of life, if you're looking for meaning and purpose and, and freedom from your sins this morning is to be in the presence of God. And the source of that life is through his son, Jesus. That is the key. What is life? It is Jesus. What is it to know life? It is Jesus. You know, I, I mentioned um, the time that I got to spend with Joan Grindle near the end of her life, and I was with her on Tuesday, January 2nd. None of us realized at the time, I don't think, that she would be with Jesus on the 6th. But when we were together on, on the 2nd, she wanted to talk about um, just the doubts that she was having, the struggle about What's really going to happen when I die? How can I know that I'm going to be with Jesus? And I said, Joan, let's look at 1 John chapter 5. And I, I reminded her that John, the apostle of Jesus, had written the gospel of John and the book of Revelation that talks about all those promises. But he also wrote these letters. And in his first letter near the end of it, he says this, and he says this to Joan and to each one of us. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. And I reminded her that, that, that this life is in her son. His son is through faith in Jesus. And I asked her, do you have the son? She said, yes. I said, then listen to what John says. He makes this binary statement. He says, the one who has the son has life. And the one who does not have the son does not have life. And I said, Joan, listen to what he says next. He says, it's almost as if he says it to you and me. Joan, Gary, each one of you, I have written these things to those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God. I've written these things. I've recorded these things. I've gathered these stories. I've chronicled all of this so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not so that you may wish or hope or yearn or question, but that you may know. So in those times where you as a human being tend to doubt, because we all do, we go to the word of God that we may know that we have eternal life. This is the, the, the new life that, this, that God is, is birthing in the church that we're reading about. And God does big things through his gathered people. I wonder, you know, we're going to start talking over the next couple weeks about 2024. What is God going to do through us this year? As you think about these applications to come clean, to come forward, to come home, to, to look at the shadow effect of your life, I want to encourage you, as the angel did to the apostles, if God has brought you out of the prison of sin and selfishness, stand firm and speak life. Let me give you one direct thing to be praying on this regard. We're in an election year. And it, it, this is a great application for us to think on, right? We want to stand firm for truth, biblical truth, but we want to speak life. There is no candidate that is Jesus. And so what does it look like for us this year to stand firm and to speak life as we apply these things to our lives in the coming year? Pray with me this morning. Lord God, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for the birth of the church. I thank you for the principles we can glean. And Lord, there's so much more we could have looked at this morning, but God, would you just deal with our hearts? Help us to just kind of use this morning as an inventory point to make sure that we're not only walking with you, Jesus, but that, you're, that we're gathered together, that we're expectant for what you're gonna do in, among, and through us this year. We give you the rest of this day in Jesus' name, amen.